Certainly this is a day when we need men of God to arise, not in our own strength, but in His strength. And one of those things that is hindering it is certainly the onslaught of moral impurity. There's not a person in this room that does not understand that we are in a desperate battle today. I encouraged our young people that were sophomores, juniors, and seniors up at Camp Joy just last week. I said, when you're battling in the arena of moral impurity, you are in hand-to-hand -hand combat. It is hand-to-hand -hand combat. And that's the only way you'll ever defeat moral impurity. And it is that kind of battle. And uh, we've been dealing with that this week a little bit different way than we did two years ago. If some of you remember Sunday School, and I know many of you were not able to be there, so I just want to get you on board. I've tried to do that every evening. We dealt with the co-infections of moral impurity. Uh, two years ago, we were on a journey, and we dealt with some of the, the progressions that leads to strongholds and coping mechanisms in our life. Moral impurity, of course, is one of many anger you have, and uh, you have other addictions and, and other things that we turn to to try to cope with the pain, the difficulty, the hardships in life. We talked about that for a whole week, kind of introduced the subject. I think as a church, we've been on the journey. Many of us can articulate a whole lot more two years later than we could have at the beginning, and I hope it's been helpful to you. It certainly has been to me. And, uh, uh, personal growth as well as helping others. And um, I will say, I remember when I just got started on this journey and I preached at a church down in Florida, I remember a young man, he was one of the janitors there, just handed me a note. And I looked at it, it had a phone number, had his name, and it had these words, please help. I remember sitting down with him and he began to tell me uh, his deep addiction into a very dark, all pornography is dark, but this was a very dark uh, sector of it. And I remember being struck with, as he began to lay out, he took that little sheet, the four things, the addictive root, the addictive mindset, the addictive behavior, addictive cloak, and he filled it out. That was the first time I'd ever seen anybody diagnose themselves. I remember being so helped by it because I began to see correlations and connections that has helped me in counseling and helping others. Uh, but I began to recognize as I've been on the journey that uh, whenever somebody gets into moral impurity, of course that's any kind of viewing of any kind of uh, inappropriate materials, we often call it pornography, it could, could be a variety of other things that lead up to that, that we wouldn't necessarily call that that now. But uh, that issue, of course, uh, there's other issues that go with that, the whole issue, other issues of sexual uh, impurities are certainly there. And I began to recognize in the journey that that particular sin brings co-infections that seem unrelated, co-infections with it. Now on Sunday night we dealt with the number one co-infection that accompanies moral impurity. If you're out here looking at pornography, I already know something about you. You are selfish to the core, or you never get into it. It's the only thing, reason you get into it is because you're selfish, because if you cared about your wife, future wife, or present wife, or your kids, as we said before, you wouldn't get into it. Uh, but the truth is you don't. So that's, that is, um, that's the co-infection. And I find that in order for there to be deliverance, there has to be brokenness over the co-infections, see. And uh, that's when God cleans us out, when His blood cleanses us from all sin, when we get honest, God, you're right, I'm selfish. Wow, that's when you get deliverance. And we dealt last night with the co-infection of deception. People who get into any aspects of moral impurity often, in fact, most cases, they're being deceptive. And there's different aspects we talked about, which we won't go into again, of how that deception manifests itself. But tonight, another co-infection. This one has devastating consequences, and it's why I believe the church in America is powerless today. And it's the co-infection of unbelief. Unbelief. 
I pointed out in Sunday school, I won't have take time to go to it, but in 1 Timothy chapter number 1, the Bible tells us at the very end that uh, you can shipwreck your faith by pushing away your conscience. In fact, you do shipwreck your faith when you push away your conscience. And when somebody gets in the moral impurity, their conscience is going to go after them. I don't care if they're as worldly as can be. There are certain things that the Spirit of God are, is going to use the conscience to do. And they're going to, when you push away your conscience, and we've got a world that for decades now has pushed away their conscience, the consequence is you shipwreck your faith. And when you cannot believe God, you're in big trouble. And the problem is, many people in Christianity can't believe God. Now, I remember back when I was in Bible college, I had a revelation. I'm not talking about something that was mystical. I'm just talking about one day the lights went on. And I discovered something that I thought was earth-shattering, and it was. But I thought something I had discovered an unbelievable, a truth that absolutely rocked my foundational world. And that is, sanctification is by faith. That truth absolutely changed my life. I'm not saying that I immediately began to live it, but it was life-altering. I thought sanctification was by works. Now, my dad didn't preach that, but you know how it is. I was young, dense, dumb, etc., and I didn't get it. But uh, somewhere along the line in Bible college, that revelation, I think it was through God used the biography, two-volume biography of Hudson Taylor to just open my eyes to the simplicity of sanctification by faith, which means if growth in the Christian life is by faith and you're shipwrecking your faith, you're in trouble. How are you going to grow spiritually if you've shipwrecked your faith? And the answer is, you're not. So what are you going to think about a pastor who's looking at pornography? You think that happens today? I hate to tell you. Unfortunately, in our day, and of course, the younger the pastor, more likely it is. I think they say 58% of all pastors struggle with sexual addictions. Now, that's a broader scope of churches that I'm comfortable with, but nonetheless... That's stunning, isn't it? So I want to ask you a question. How is one of those young men, or it could be an older man, in some cases it might be, but how in the world are they going to lead a church to faith when their own faith shipwrecked? And the answer is they're not. See, one of the great devastations of pushing away your conscience and not biblically dealing with the sins of moral impurity is your faith gets just shattered, destroyed. So you can't believe God anymore. Now, if you can't depend on the supernatural to make the ministry work, you're going to have to depend on the natural, which means you will compromise. You will compromise, you will become pragmatic, and you will trust worldly methods to do what only God can do. You know what I love about the ministry? It does not work unless God steps in. It does not work. Oh, you can make it look like it's working, and you can fool other people, but you cannot fool spiritual people. Spiritual people know that's not God. See, you couldn't have fooled my grandmother. When I walked into my grandmother's presence, I walked into the presence of God. That lady walked with God like few people I've known. The only other person I have ever sensed the reality of God's presence like my grandmother was Mrs. John R. Rice. It's the only one on that level. My wife and I went to see her a few years before she died and felt like we walked right into the presence of God. Now, I'm just going to tell you, friends, ministry doesn't work unless you can trust God to do the miraculous. doesn't work. So if you're compromising your conscience in the moral purity arena by looking at filth, by compromising watching R-rated movies, by watching things that provoke you to lust, and you keep pushing God away doing your own thing, you're shipwrecking your faith. 
So if you say, okay, preacher, I got a problem, how do I rebuild my faith? Because I, I don't, I don't want to continue that way. Go to James chapter 2. Would you do that? James chapter number 2. To be honest with you, often when I come to James chapter number 2, I present an apologetic on James chapter number 2. Now, several of you, particularly in the seminary, have heard me present an apologetic for James chapter number 2. You say, preacher, what do you mean? I mean... That I take a quite, I would take the minority interpretation on James chapter number two. I'd be the first to, to admit that it's a minority interpretation. I do think it's right, but the book of James, otherwise I wouldn't believe it. Um, the book of James is a book on revival. I remember several years ago, Dr. Rick Flanders made the statement the two most important uh, books in the New Testament on revival are the book of Galatians and the book of James. And I thought about it for a moment. I said, yeah, I get it. Galatians is the theology of revival, and James is what it looks like. Boots on the ground. Revival's all just faith is really all it is, and that's what James, James is about. Now, 15 times in the book of James, James addresses the people he's writing to as brethren. So my contention is the audience of James chapter 2 is people who are saved. So when, I, when he says faith without works is dead, most of the interpretation I heard growing up and in college and in professors was that means if you're saved and you have saving faith, which you have to have to be saved, if you have saving faith, you'll have works or obedience, and if you don't have obedience, you're not saved. Now, I'm not going to go right now into uh, doing uh, a, a little bit of a, a message on the, the perseverance of the saints. That's not my my. Uh, intention tonight, because we're obviously going somewhere, my intention is to present James chapter 2. It is not, I, I believe, it is not teaching us that uh, saving faith results in obedience. I don't believe it's teaching us that. I believe it's teaching us this. Sanctifying or Christian life faith always results in obedience. So if you're out here saying, I'm a man of faith or a woman of faith, then it's going to result in obedience. And if it doesn't result in obedience, you are not a, you're saved. You may be saved, but you're not certainly believing God. So I believe that's what it's saying. I, I don't have time to do my defense or my apologetic. But in this passage of Scripture, it tells us several things that happens when people believe God enough to obey Him. Do you get that? You believe God enough to obey Him. I believe what James chapter 2 is saying is this. If you believe something, then you'll obey it. And if you don't obey it, hey, face it, you don't believe it. See, all of us know that. That's what I believe it's saying. But it's also saying this, that when you and I believe God enough to obey Him, guess what happens? Some uh, remarkable, supernatural things happen that involve your faith. So if you shipwrecked your faith, I want to show you how to get it back. I think that's what James chapter 2 is telling us. It's telling how to get back faith, <laughs> how to build it back, how to get it unshipwrecked. I'm not sure if that's a way to say it or not, but... Uh, how to rebuild the deal. Okay, so let's begin by looking, if we could please, at verse number 14. Now, I am going to give some apologetic for my position because uh, I just will, just part of it, but I, I don't want that to be the emphasis. Now, if you look at verse number 14, it starts with these words, What doth it profit my brethren? So who's he talking to? Saved or lost? And the answer is saved. Okay, that's very important. Very important that you get that. Look at the last four words of verse number 16. It says, What doth it profit? I believe those are parentheses, and I believe James is making an argument here to teach us something about faith. And he's simply saying this, a faith that, is, uh, a, a faith that believes God enough to obey God will deliver you. Now, I've got a question for you, friend. If you are hooked into some kind of 
sinful addiction in your life. It may not be in the moral impurity arena. It might be. It could be technology. We've mentioned social media. People get addicted to that. Video games, other things that become coping mechanisms that become unhealthy in their Christian life. We've talked about those. It could be, again, literal chemical addictions and these kind of things certainly are part of our culture today. Do you want to be delivered? This passage actually is telling you how to be delivered. <laughs> now, in this particular passage, he's using an illustration of faith uh, that um, kind of fits the book and, of course, that time. But let's look at it, please. Look what it says in verse number 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works, or obedience? Can faith save him? And the answer would clearly be, well, no, it can't. Now, it all centers around that little word, save, because we almost immediately think, well, that's talking about salvation from sin or from hell. Personally, I don't believe that's what it is, and because it's the word sozo. The word sozo is a Greek word, and translated literally, it has the idea, of course, save, rescue, deliver. The word is used 54 times in the Gospels, but only 20 of the 54 uses in the Gospel are talking about what we would consider to be salvation. Salvation from hell, sin. Okay, 20 of the 54 times. 20 times it's talking about deliverance, I believe, from physical death. Okay, so sometimes it's used physically, and there are other usages as well. So the word sozo is, um, has broad usages. Okay, it could talk about being saved from uh, death, could be saved from uh, illness, it could be being rescued from a, uh, an impending uh, uh, harm, it could be saved from hell, sin. Okay, so the word has a variety. I think you understand, just like English, it has a variety of meanings. So the question would be in this passage of Scripture, well, what does it mean here? Well, let me just give you a little principle, and that would be often if you want to determine what a word means, and it has a variety of meanings, you, you obviously look at context, and I'm going to for a moment come back to context, but you also look at how the author uses the word in other places in the same book. So the word so-so is used five times in the book of James. Five chapters, that's a lot of times. Five times in the book of James. Now, let me just show you a couple of them. Go to chapter 5. Would you see this? I hate to be, I don't want to be too pedantic here, but let's just look at it. Look at verse number 15 as just an example. I won't go through all of them for time's sake. If I was preaching an apologetic, I would. But look at verse 15. It says, And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Okay, now what kind of deliverance is that? And the answer is, deliverance from sickness. Say, I'm simply pointing out that James, the writer, is using the word save in multifaceted ways. So the word deliver here, I believe there's other passages in chapter number 1, chapter number 5 that would help us with this. But uh, if we continue on, I think we'll see what deliverance it is. He gives an illustration in verse number 15. He says, if a brother or sister, okay, now he's talking to brethren. And if he's talking about brethren's brothers or sisters, it's certainly not literal. Is he talking about saved or lost? saved. Okay. So, a brother or sister, these are Christians then, be naked, that's the idea of ill-clothed, uh, not well-clothed, destitute of daily food, obviously in poverty, and of course in those days this would be poverty like we could hardly understand in our day, the poor people in our land. In fact, I will say the poorest person in the United States of America probably lives better than 98% of everybody who's ever lived on planet Earth. So, you got to get an idea. This is poverty like we're not used to. Okay, so it goes on and says, so one of you shall say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Now, you have to understand, be ye warmed and filled. 
in the Greek language there's a voice which determines what kind of action it is, and this is either middle or passive. Most scholars believe middle makes so sense, and I won't go into what the middle voice is. You can talk to Dr. Paul about the middle voice. He'd nice to give you a lecture about the middle voice. But I believe only what makes sense here is the passive voice. So what he would be saying is, warm yourself. Or, or excuse me, be warmed. Uh, 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 warm yourself would be middle voice. Be being warmed or be being filled, which means I believe it was a statement of faith. So I think what he was saying is, hey, listen, why don't you go out, let God warm you, let God fill you. I, that's, I think that's the emphasis, I, I would say. And look what he goes on and says here in verse number, we're going somewhere with this, so hang with me. Notwithstanding you give them not the things which are needful to the body, and here it is again, what doth it profit? Okay, so the picture would be this. Somebody who has physical needs comes and says, I'm in physical need. And they're believers. They're part of your, your assembly. They're, they're obviously brother or sister. And you say to him, hey, God's great. He can warm you. He can fill you. And yet you had the means to fill them and warm them, but you didn't do that. You know what God says? What is the profit? Now go on and notice what the next phrase says here because it's very interesting. He says, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. So the illustration has a, has a saying, if we could, and the saying is, faith without works is dead. So my contention is, since the illustrations of our believers, faith without works is too. Okay, so what we're getting at here is God is simply saying this. If you have the means to help another brother or sister who's in physical need, dire need, you have the means to help them, and you make statements of faith, hey, God will warm you, God will fill you, but you make no effort to meet their needs when you could, he said, can that faith save you? Now, you say, well, what in the world does that mean? Let me give you an illustration that might help, and then we're going to go to the application that we're using in our particular scenario. Hudson Taylor, when he was in Britain, came up with a very interesting thought. He thought this, if I cannot trust God to take care of me in Britain, how will I ever trust God to take care of me in China? You know, that's a pretty good thought, isn't it? So he decided in China, China there were certain principles he would live by to test God, if I could say that. And one of those was he wouldn't talk to anybody about finances, only to God. So one day he was accosted by an Irishman that he'd been in that neighborhood, which happened to be a poor neighborhood in the particular town he was in. He was accosted by an Irishman who uh, said, uh, begged him, he'd been on some ministry in that area, and begged him to come to his lodging. He went to his lodging and saw a mother who had just given birth. She was in dire physical need. And of course, children, they're all around the darkened room living in total squalor. And uh, he came up the stairs there and he had in his pocket, I don't understand British currency at that time, but a, a coin. And the coin was fairly substantial, but it was only a coin. It was not broken up. I, I, could we say like a $100 bill? I, just, I don't know if it was that equivalency, probably not, but it would be something like that. It, and he had to live on it for the next little bit, uh, quite a bit of time anyway. He had to live on that. And he came up the door and and uh, he was trying to help the man, but everything he said seemed hollow because it was like the Spirit of God saying to him, you need to help meet that man's need. And he began to argue with God. Now, God, if I had change, let's just use the $100. I'm just going to use that to help you understand. If I had change, I'd give him 10 bucks. You ever done that? <laughs> and, and he was just wrestling with God in total misery, and finally he thought, 
I'm just going to pray. He loved to pray in those days. And he said, Dear Heavenly Father, and the moment he said it, the Spirit of God said, You big hypocrite, how dare you call me Heavenly Father when you're not willing to trust me without that coin in your pocket? Have you ever had the Spirit of God just cut through the chase on the deal? He stumbled through the prayer. The man looked up at him when he'd done, done praying and said, Sir, if you can help us, please do. It was like a word from the king. The verse came to mind, give to him that asketh thee. He reached in his pocket, he took that coin out, he gave it to the man, and he said, Sir, you can trust God. Believe me, I'm going to have to do it. And when he went down those stairs, you can read it in his two-volume biography, he made, I'm not quoting it perfectly, but he, here's what he said, not only was that poor, ill lady's life saved, mine was saved too. He wasn't talking about physical deliverance, and he wasn't even talking about deliverance from sin and hell. He was talking, don't miss this, of deliverance from unbelief. See, what God is helping us understand here is when there's clear statements of obedience that we say, I believe the Bible, but we're not willing to follow them, God says you will not find deliverance until you believe God enough to obey Him. And when you believe God enough to obey Him, He delivers you. These are the words, some of you are familiar with Ted Roberts who does the Conquer series, these are his words. There have been many times as I've helped people at war with their sexual bondage when I realized they had come to a turning point. One of the most crucial turning points is whether or not they will accept God's authority over them. I try to explain the reasons for God's sexual guidelines, but it always comes down to whether or not they will comply. In nearly every case at some point, what God has asked them to do in the healing process doesn't make sense to them. Will they respond to God's loving authority by saying, yes, God? And then get on with the task or not. If they don't, they'll never have any staying power in the midst of battle. You know what I believe Ted Roberts is saying? He's saying the same truth. <laughs> See, it comes to a point, friends, perhaps you were here last night, and you say, I just can't, I just can't. I know God's telling me I need to go to somebody, and I need to get this thing laid out there, and I need to fully disclose the issues in my life. I, but I just can't do that. I know the Bible says if you cover your sins, won't prosper. If you confess and forsake, you have mercy. But you know what the truth is? You don't believe it enough to obey it. And you know what? You'll never be delivered. You know what I found, particularly with young people? When they got a sin issue in their life and there's a clear command from God's Word how to deal with it, like going and getting it right with a teacher they've cheated on their test, or going to a parent and getting right the fact they've been not looking at junk on the computer. You know what I found? If they obey God and go and get it right and get thorough in dealing with it, they get delivered. They get delivered. There's a freedom that comes into their heart. There's a joy that's written across their face. And you know what they've done? They've taken the first step toward deliverance. But you will never get to the first step from being delivered from unbelief until you believe God enough to obey Him. Now, I don't know what your issue may be. Well, many times somebody gets hung up on some, one of the truths that God's telling you, this is what you need to do next. It's critical. Because up to this point, when you've been pushing the Holy Spirit off, you've been shipwrecking your faith. And I'm just telling you, I don't care what diploma you have on your wall. Some of you out live stream, I don't care what diploma you have on your wall. I don't care what Bible college it is. If you've been pushing off your conscience, you're, shipwreck, you're shipwrecking your faith, and your diploma won't rescue you. Only God can. 
And the deliverance comes when you say, enough of it. I'm sick and tired of pushing off the Holy Spirit's conviction through my conscience. Okay, God, I'm ready to obey. If it kills me, I'm going to obey in dependence on your strength, not mine. As we talked about a couple of nights ago. So, James chapter 2 is telling us how to get delivered. 100% without reserve, total obedience to what God's telling you to do through His Word. So, if He's telling you to confess, you confess. I can just tell you right now, if you're a young man, you're still living in the home of your parents. I don't care if you're a college student, but you're still living in the home of your parents, and you got looking at pornography, then you're not going to be right with God until you make a call home to your dad and say, Dad, you need to know something. I've been looking at filth. Particularly, obviously, if your dad will have an issue with it. You have an unsaved dad who's not, wouldn't care, that's not the person you'd go to. Probably go to a spiritual authority. But the point is, you say, I'm done covering it. I'm done acting like I'm something I'm not. I'm getting help. I'm doing it God's way. That's when you get delivered. That's what the passage is saying. In this case, they need to be delivered from, in you know, culture, they need to be delivered from not trusting God when it came to their finances and helping poor people in their congregation. They need to be delivered. If you look at the earlier purchase passages, so just a few verses earlier, they need to be delivered from prejudice in the congregation. Okay, same idea. Now it's being delivered from stinginess. Okay, they need to, the whole issue was their faith, though. See, that's what's after. Now let me show you something else here. Again, I like to run down it through as apologetic, but for time I can't. Look, if you would, please, down to verse number 20. Uh, let's go to verse number yeah, 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. Now, the idea of perfect, perfect here is complete, matured. So God is saying here, not only... When you believe God enough to obey Him, not only is there going to be deliverance, there's going to be development. Your faith is going to now be strengthened, matured. It's going to get to a point of completion. And that simply means where there's a full confidence in God. There's no reserve. When your faith is perfect, it doesn't mean you're sinless. It means there is no reserve. Whatever God tells you to do, I'm doing it. Most of us have reserve in our faith. You know how I know that? Because when the Holy Spirit tells you to give a track to the cashier, we have reserve. See, we have reserve in our faith. And that's hurting us. So God says, okay, here's what you do. If you want your faith to develop and grow and mature to a point where there's no reserve, here's what you do. With that faith, you mix obedience and by means of that obedience, that dependence upon God, mixed with that dependent obedience, you will mature your faith. So what God is helping us understand, friends, is faith that depends upon God and steps out in dependent obedience following God delivers you, but it also develops you. Matures your faith and encourages you to believe God. I don't know about you, I think all of us are, wow, that's great. Develop my faith. So the question I would ask, and it's certainly we're dealing with the co-infections of moral impurity, but you can make an application to other areas of your life, perhaps where you've struggled, and struggled to believe God. You know what the answer is? It's simply believing God enough to obey Him. For some of you, it might be simply be evangelism. Is God telling you to give the gospel to your next door neighbor, your co-worker? 
And for years you pushed it off. I can't do that. I don't have the ability. My, my personality is flat as an open bottle of soda. I don't I can't do it. I, you know, man, I'm not that smart. I'm dumb. He'll tie me in logical pretzels. I can't do that. I got really good news for you. When it comes to soul winning, the power is not in you. It's in the message. Just, it's like this. Back when I was growing up, I grew up in Chicago. Um, I don't know what it was, but our, our neighborhood was into fireworks. And we're not talking the stupid stuff. You know, we're talking about fireworks, you know, like M80s, cherry bombs, you know, Dago bombs. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody? It's like these millennials have no idea about fireworks. It's just like all those baby boomers. I guess that's what we did back in the, I didn't do it. I was the preacher's kid. It was all illegal, but I heard it happening all around me. It sounded like a war zone. You know, when you got an M80, I'm going to tell you, friends, the power is not in you. The power is in the stick of dynamite or the quarter of a stick of dynamite. That's what an M80 is. I remember years ago, we had a kid in our youth group. One night, I shouldn't say this, but he did. He came by Pastor Van Gelderen's mailbox and he threw an M80 in it. <laughs> destroyed the mailbox. Now, I want to tell you, the kid didn't destroy the mailbox. The M80 did. <laughs> See, the great thing about the gospel is it, it's powerful. And by the way, he is now a pastor, and every time he sees Pastor Van Gelderen, every time he looks at the ground and he apologizes for blowing up his mailbox. <laughs> so if you're going to go in the ministry, don't blow up mailboxes, particularly of other pastors who become well-known, okay? Because then you're going to have to apologize every time you see him, and you don't want to do that. He's even preached here. That's funny. I invited him into chapel just so we could go through a couple days of agony of having to face his former youth pastor who he blew up his mailbox. Okay, but the point is, the M80 blew up the mailbox. Listen, friend, your next door neighbor, your coworker, the person down the street God's laid on your heart, you may, you, good, your personality may be as flat as an open bottle of soda. You may not be very smart, but I got really good news for you. Just learn the gospel and give it. That's where the power is. I've been giving the gospel, preaching to teenagers for 36 years. And I will tell you, I know I'm not cool. I've said this before. I know I'm not in, and I'm certainly not hip. And I know I don't, I don't have anything right when it comes to teenagers. But you know what? I see them saved all the time. You know why? Because by the grace of God, I'm going to love them, and I believe the message is powerful. <laughs> Saw 24 of them saved just a couple weeks ago, just preaching the gospel. <laughs> but see, when you don't believe God, and you push off your conscience, guess what you do? You shipwreck your faith. There are dear people in this room, you come to church every time the doors are open, but you can't remember the last time you opened your mouth and gave the gospel. You know why? Because probably your faith's been hurt. So here's how you overcome it. Here's how you overcome it. Here's what the passage is saying. You overcome it this way. By saying, okay, God, I can't do this without you. But God, you said the message is powerful, and I'm depending on your Holy Spirit to enable me. So I'm going to go out to that person, I'm going to give them the gospel. And I'm going to trust you to do the work. You know what happens? Your faith will develop. Your shipwrecked faith will begin to mature. It will begin to develop. And your confidence will grow in the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. So one day you'll reach a point where you have no reserve. No reserve. I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure I'm there. But I will tell you this. I believe I've known people who were. 
I can't remember when we were talking about missionary Jim Norton to Japan, but I remember as a little boy going out to eat with my dad and Jim Norton, and I could not believe what Jim Norton would do. He would not leave the restaurant with not just giving somebody a track. That wasn't enough for Jim Norton. He'd give them a track, and he'd witness to them. And I was sitting there as a little kid, embarrassed. I'm thinking, Brother Norton, don't you see? They want to eat. They don't want to talk to you. They don't want to listen to you. They want to eat. I'm thinking these thoughts. But you know what I learned about Jim Norton? No reserve. No reserve. How do you think Jim Norton got there? Do you think he got there by disobeying God most of the time? <laughs> no, he got there just by believing God <laughs> and obeying Him. Independence on God's Holy Spirit to enable Him and to empower the message. Now, that's soul winning. I only give that because some of you say, well, preacher, my issue is not moral impurity. But for those in that that is an issue, remember, you've gotten in a habit of pushing away God. So I would ask you, what's the areas of obedience that you need to take? Maybe it's that full disclosure, getting with the people God wants you to get with, your authorities in your life or your spiritual authorities in your life saying, I've got a problem, I need help. And I will tell you, one of the things you saw on Sunday with the disciple you, there are many people out here ready to go that want to be able to be a blessing to you and a help to you, to lead you, show you the pathway into victory. You do not have to be addicted to pornography the rest of your life. There is a pathway out. It may be long, it may be arduous spiritually, it is hand-to-hand -hand combat, but hallelujah, there is a victory, and many people can attest that God gives victory they never thought possible. Okay, but it won't come until there's no reserve. You start saying, okay, God, I'm going to obey. There'll be other steps along the way. Obviously, developing a relationship with God. We talked about that a couple nights ago. Getting a hold of God's vision for your life and embracing it, whatever that may be. Understanding a way of escape. God makes a way of escape right at the moment of temptation. If you're ever going to come overcome moral temptation, you have to learn to immediately take the way of escape. And I will simply say this. This is not the message. I probably will preach a whole message on this sometime. There are two weapons, I believe, that immediately need to be used when there particularly is mental temptation to think inappropriate thoughts. Number one, don't miss this, Scripture. <laughs> I encourage every man in this room feels like you're somewhat defeated in the arena of moral impurity, at least in the mind. Memorize every verse on the strange woman in the book of Proverbs. And you will find it is an unbelievable arsenal. It's a machine gun of verses against pornography. Did you know the Bible deals with pornography? It's called the strange woman. You know what that means? She's a stranger to the intimacy of your marriage or future marriage. And if you're not married, that means every female out there. Proverbs 2, Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7, Proverbs 9, Proverbs 23. Memorize every verse that talks about the strange woman. Because you'll need it. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her path, for she hath cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. By the way, there's two kinds of men that the strange woman gets. Number one, wounded men. We've talked about father wounds. We've talked about mother wounds. Wounded men. Number two, self-sufficient men. The strong one. I don't need God. I can handle this. I can play around with lust and be okay. The self-sufficient man. They are, those two are the ones that get hit by the strange woman. That's what the Bible says. See how practical it is? It's unbelievable, the book of Proverbs. But you have to memorize Scripture because in hand-to-hand -hand combat you need a sword. 
And I try to encourage young men, you are in for hand-to-hand combat. But you're going to have to have the sword. And it's got to be up here. And you've got to know it. And you've got to embrace it. And you've got to think it. And you've got to love it. Okay, Scripture. Now, remember this. I, I was using with someone here even today. I, I'm just going to use it on you. If I came up to you and said, now listen, I don't want you to think about blue elephants. Whatever you do, do not think about blue elephants. Please, do not think about blue elephants. Please, right at this moment, don't think about it. Do not think about it. Okay, what are you going to be tempted to think about? Blue elephants. So you say, preacher, what would you do if somebody did that? I'd say, I'm going to think pink elephants, pink elephants. It's all pink elephants, pink elephants, pink elephants. In other words, if you try to fight thinking about blue elephants, all you can think about is blue elephants. Oh, don't lust, don't lust, don't think those dirty thoughts. No, don't, don't, don't go there. Will you have victory? And the answer is no, you're not going to have victory. You see, the point of is, is don't play defense, go on the offense. You go on the offense with Scripture, and there's a second offensive weapon that is huge. It's huge, and that is prayer. God, that woman is going to hell. Probably she's going to die in her sins and go to hell. God, I'm not going to lust over her. I'm praying right now, keep her out of hell. God, work her in her heart. Help her to get saved. I can't witness to her, but God, help somebody else to get a hold of her. You start offensive praying, I think the devil's going to stop listening to you, stop tempting you to think wicked thoughts if every time you turn it is to go after his kingdom. Get prayer targets that go after Satan every time you're tempted. See, you won't be thinking about blue elephants if you're praying for revival. You tracking with me? Listen, God's given you the weapons. And there's a way of escape is not two seconds after the temptation when you've already succumbed to it. It's at the moment of temptation. That's where the way of escape is. It's not wrong to be tempted because Jesus was. It's wrong to entertain it. And at the moment of more, a moral, immoral thinking, temptation, God's saying that's when the way of escape is. And the way of escape comes again through the great battle of the Scripture and I believe prayer, offensive prayer. Much more could be said, but trying to give you some practical ideas of obedience. And when you start believing God enough to obey Him, what happens is He perfects your faith. Now, I've just got to conclude the apologetic and we'll have to close but you say, well, preacher, what about that? It says that Abraham was justified by works. What about that? Because doesn't that sound like he was saved? Okay, okay. let's look at, look at that passage again. Look at verse number 21. I just want to have to do a little bit of apologetic and close it up. It says, was not Abraham our father justified by, by works, verse 21, when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? He's asking a question. I want to ask you a question. When did Abraham get saved? I'm talking about from sin and hell. And the answer is in Genesis 15, 6, when he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. When he offered Isaac on the altar, you know what that was? Scholars say it was between 30 and 50 years later. He can't be talking about salvation. So you say, what's he talking about? Well, in a moment we're going to try to go over that. Well, maybe I'll help you, help you with this. I'm going to ask you, um, I'm going to, uh, what I'm going to do is look at verse 22. I guess let's, let's just see that together. I want you to see the first two words. It says, seest thou. Look at verse 24. Ye see. Okay, here's what I want you to understand, is Abraham was justified in the sight of God in Genesis 15, 6. And I can prove that because in Romans 3, 20, it says, no man is justified by the works of the law in the sight of God. No man is. 
So Abraham was justified in the sight of God in Genesis 15, 6 when he believed God. He was justified in the sight of men when he offered Isaac upon the altar. In other words, people said, that man walks with God. That man's righteous. So I believe what it's talking about is the third thing is when you believe God enough to obey Him first, He delivers your faith, saves your faith. Number two, it develops your faith, matures it. And number three, it declares your faith. It declares it to a lost and dying world. It declares it to other Christians struggling in your faith. That's a man of faith. Now I want to ask you a question. When Tom Johnson comes here and tells soul winning stories that are absolutely remarkable and through the roof and unbelievable, what does it do? Hurt your faith or stir it? And the answer is, you're thinking, that guy believes God. He may be a nut, but he believes God. <laughs> Maybe us, some of us need to be a little bit more of a nut. What do you think about? And I'm saying that reverently because I really do admire Tom Johnson. See, it screams to a lost and dying world, that man believes God. He's righteous. I believe that's what the passage is saying. You say, what about Rahab? And again, I'm not giving you my full apologetics, so if you still have questions, I'd be glad to talk to you. Look at 25. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. If you go to Hebrews 11, it tells you when Rahab got saved. You know when she got saved? When she received the spies. But this one says, not only did she receive them, she sent them out another way. It's so interesting to me. In Abraham, God's talking about 30 years. And in Rahab, he's talking about 30 minutes. Rahab was justified in the sight of God the moment she received the spies. She was receiving the spies' God. But she was not justified in the sight of the spies until she protected them and with her own life in jeopardy sent them out another way. And then those spies knew she's a believer. See, so God's given us two illustrations here. But my point is, when you and I believe God enough to obey Him, it delivers us from our unbelief. It develops our faith to a point of no reserve, and it declares to everybody else, that guy believes God. Many years ago, I was just having a job and worked at a, a Christian ministry not too far from our house, and I had to watch videos all day long because this is back in the video day and they had big screens that they would use and I had to watch for, you know, things that would mess up the, the video and cause, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the ink to, it was back in different technology. I know you millennials have no clue what I'm talking about, but um, I had to watch videos all day long. There were videos of this uh, particular speaker speaking and he had visiting speakers and one of the visiting speakers was a man, some of you will recognize the name of Otto Koenig who was a missionary to somewhere over there in Papua New Guinea, somewhere over there. And in it he gave this story about how he was angry missionary. He just, I mean, the people were thieves. You know, he'd go out and he'd find a, somebody with a necklace and it was a fork. It was his fork hanging off the necklace, you know. And stuff like that would happen all the time. It was like they would, unashamedly, they would just steal They'd steal his food, uh, fruit. Of course, the pineapple story, some of you are familiar with that. They'd steal his food that he'd uh, make and, I mean, uh, grow, and they'd steal stuff out of his house, and he, he just all the time. And he would get angry at them. He was kind of known as the angry missionary. Some of you are familiar, very familiar with the story. So he goes on furlough, and he hears this speaker that where the ministry was, and God touched his heart, and he gave everything he owned to God, and came back and told everybody that. All the natives, he said, you, you, this isn't mine anymore. These trees aren't mine. The garden's not mine. Nothing in my house is mine. I've given it all to God. Well, that really concerned them. 
Because they weren't worried about the missionary, but they were worried about the God who created everything. Well, make a long story short, he wasn't angry anymore. And uh, I don't know all the ins and outs of it. One day they came with a big, huge group to his, his front door, and they would rub their noses when they'd think. That would really be good at BCM. If you rubbed your noses when you think, that would help your professors know whether or not you're thinking or not. <laughs> but they would rub their noses when they were thinking. And they're all rubbing their noses. And they said, Tuan, they called him, that's what they, I mean, missionary. They said, Tuan, they said, had you become a Christian? And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, before you left, when you were here before, you always told us about becoming a Christian. We always kind of hoped we'd see one. Have you become a Christian? Well, I will tell you, friends, he humbled himself. And I know it may not rattle you theologically, but here's what he decided to say. Yes, I have become a Christian. You know what Otto Koning was saying? He was not saying he got saved. He was simply saying this. I believe God enough to obey Him, and He's changing my life, and now I am declaring to the world <laughs> that I believe God. And it was screaming to the world that He was righteous. You see what it's saying here, the passage of Scripture it's saying? It's telling us three, three important truths. When you believe God enough to obey Him, it's going to deliver you. It's going to develop your faith, and it's going to declare to everybody else, that guy's different. He's changed. He's got the fingerprints of God on his life. There's something supernatural going on in his life. Now, friends, I'm going to tell you, unbelief is one of the tragedies of moral impurity. Shipwrecked faith is one of the great tragedies. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I look at young men going out in the ministry and compromising and compromising and pretty soon their church looks like it's a nightclub. And I can tell you in every single case, I guarantee you somewhere along the line, they shipwrecked their faith. Now they've got to, how to figure out how to fill a church without God. I'm telling you, friends, you don't have to live with shipwrecked faith. Aren't you glad that James chapter 2 gives you a roadmap back? Now, I don't know what your area of obedience is. I don't know your area you pushed God off over and over again and it's hurt your faith. It's hurt your faith. I will tell you, there's, I, I think I preached to the BCM students just the other day. I was talking about one thing you can for sure say when you've got a complaining spirit, you're not in faith. I told them, read Numbers 11 through 14. Man, that'll show you when the children of Israel got in unbelief, you know what they did? They complained. It's always a good surefire thing you need to work on. You get to James chapter 2 and get a hold of this faith thing. See, faith believes God. It trusts God. Say, I believe God can do this. God enough to obey whatever the issue might be. It might be a teenager saying, saying God's called me to go to the mission field. And I don't know how it's going to happen, but I'm trusting God. It might be a young lady saying, God's called me to full-time Christian work. I'm going to do it. It may be a Bible college student. I've never won anybody to Jesus. I'm going to give my life to winning people to Jesus Christ. And friends, when you follow that up with dependent obedience, you'll be delivered. Your faith will be matured, developed. And you'll start declaring to people, God's. That guy walks with God. God's doing something in his life.